Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, we love your word. We need your word. And so, Father, would you help me speak clearly? Would you help uh, everyone here to receive your word, um, to let it bury down deep into their hearts, that, they, that it would produce fruit in them? And, Father, we pray for the kids downstairs that as they learn about this great story, too, that you would um, show them something of who you are and that they, too, would be transformed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John. I'm part of the staff team here. And let me add my welcome to Sam's welcome on this very special day on the church calendar. Um, If you're new to church, uh, welcome. Um, But if you're new to church uh, and you grew up in a church that didn't really follow the church calendar particularly closely, as I did, um, you might not know this, but today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is... Uh, It marks the first day in a week called Holy Week as we look forward to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, And even if you aren't new to church, I imagine that you know the broad brushstrokes of Easter, what Easter is about. There's a guy called Jesus, a man called Jesus, that dies on a cross, right? We we get that. Um, But even if you're not new here. Um, I wonder if you uh, are familiar with the Palm Sunday story. 
I wonder if, uh, if you're new to church or maybe you've been around for a little while. I wonder if you're familiar with what is happening on Palm Sunday. I think if you're like me, then the events of Palm Sunday have become uh, rather sanitized and safe. Um, when I think of Palm Sunday, I can't help but see illustrations in my kids' um, Bibles, right? You see the scene, it's um, smiling Jesus on a cute little donkey riding in with a crowd around him, palm leaves waving, everyone's happy, good time, warm, warm feelings. Uh, you're not entirely sure why it matters, but you know that this is a joyous occasion. And then you turn the page and you're like, Jesus is on a cross. And you think, what happened? <laughs> Try and explain to your kids, why is Jesus now on a cross? They seem to love him. Um, the story takes an abrupt turn, doesn't it? Smiling Jesus on a donkey to agony of the cross. What I want to suggest this morning is that if we understand the events of Palm Sunday, Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem, it's going to help us to understand uh, Good Friday, that Jesus' death on a cross. It's going to help us understand not only why Jesus chose to die, but also why they chose to kill him, right? Not just why Jesus chose to die, but why some people chose to violently murder him. You see, far from being a safe and sanitized event, what we're going to see, hopefully, is that Palm Sunday is a moment of confrontation. It's a moment of confrontation between Jesus and Jerusalem, Jesus and Rome, Jesus and the established powers of the day, and maybe even a confrontation between Jesus and us. You see, the enduring question of Palm Sunday is this, how will we respond to Jesus? How will we respond to Jesus when Jesus appears on the horizon at the gates of Jerusalem when we are confronted by who he is, who he claims to be. How will we respond to him? And that's what I want to look at this morning. So for the note takers, I have one point today. First gathering got a cheer. <laughs> one point today. How will we respond to Jesus? Okay, point one. How will we respond to Jesus? Now, before we get going, um, I think in order for us to get a grip of the Palm Sunday story, we need to know two pieces of context really quickly, two pieces of background information that's going to help us understand the scene that we have entered into today. The first is that the timing of Palm Sunday is during a festival called Passover, Passover. You see, every year during Passover, thousands of Jews would descend on Jerusalem to celebrate this major religious festival. It would have been like a, a city that is hosting a major sporting event, right? You got all the fans from the other nations, maybe, like maybe think of the World Cup or something like that, or, or a small island that, that has a cruise ship turn up and double the size of the population of the island descend to buy trinkets and stuff like that. Thousands of people that don't live in Jerusalem descend upon Jerusalem, and it would have been an exciting, a vibrant, buzzing with activity, but it also would have been chaotic, chaotic. 
So first, it's the Passover. Second piece of information I want us to know as we enter into this story today is that there is a very defined hierarchy of power and authority in Jerusalem at the time. Now, I'm sure you know your history, but during this time, the Roman Empire was sort of in charge, right? They were the colonial oppressive power of their day. But under the Romans, there would have been a delegated authority, local authorities. And so the Jewish people would have had their own systems of authority. They would have essentially been able to operate as they liked, as they structured themselves, as long as they, you know, they paid their taxes to the Romans and they didn't cause too much trouble. Right? Here's the thing. We know from historical records that Jerusalem and the surrounding area had a perpetual atmosphere of unrest, as is the case often under colonial rule. Perpetual atmosphere of unrest. Not everyone enjoyed being ruled by the Romans, and so we have records of fairly frequent uprisings, fairly frequent revolutionary leaders coming up, starting revolutionary movements that would push back against Roman rule. And what did the Romans do? Well, the Romans, they maintained what is called the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome through their military power. Order in Rome was maintained predominantly through violence. You see, in fact, the, the cross, crucifixion itself, was a, a Roman tool, a, a public display that would, would signal to everyone who saw this is what happens to you when you try and break the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so I want you to feel today the sense of tension of Palm Sunday. It's not a sanitized safe scene. It's a scene of confrontation and tension. I want you to feel today the anticipation of, of violent revolution, heightened by the, the chaos of the festival and the influx of people under a disgruntled, as a disgruntled people under, under the oppressive rule of Rome and the strong and swift response of Rome to anyone who would try to disturb it. In order for us to understand Palm Sunday, we have to imagine a city on a knife's edge. And into this tension comes a man riding a donkey with a crowd behind him. That's the scene. Now, if, if you'd been following the events of Jesus' life, if you were there, or indeed if you've been reading through the gospel and you've reached this point in the story, the man riding on the donkey has already built up some significance. We're starting to see the significance of the man on the donkey. You see, if you follow the narratives of the gospel, what you notice is that there is already a movement towards Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is the destination. This is the final scene. In fact, Luke 9, so 10 chapters earlier from what we, what we read this morning, 10 chapters earlier, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 10 chapters earlier, Jesus has decided he's going to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem is not a destination just because it's the Passover and Jesus is a Jew. It's a destination because there's a plan. And along the way, 
If you've been reading along with the Gospels, or if you indeed have been one of the crowd and picked up as one of the disciples, along the way he's been teaching and performing miracles. And as a result, two things have happened in the life of Jesus. First is he has picked up a following. A group of people who have started to recognize the significance of this man's life. They've been intrigued by his teaching. They have marveled at his miraculous works. He's picked up a following, but he's also, on the other hand, created some enemies, hasn't he? Periodically in the Gospels, there are confrontations with the religious and the political authorities of the day. And what we have in our text today is that same contrasting response to Jesus. In verse 37, it says this, As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. Now, in order for us to really understand what's going on in this scene, there's one final piece of background information I want to share with you. You see, for everyone involved, everyone present in this moment, including the Pharisees, including the crowd, in fact, even including Jesus, built within the collective cultural consciousness of the people was an expectation of what they would call a Messiah. A Messiah. Now, there's lots of different understandings of what this Messiah would do and what he would be. But one of the things that most people agreed upon is that he would be a king who would come and liberate his people from oppression. He would be a king who would reestablish Israel's authority. He would reclaim the land that has been promised to Israel. He would restore peace in the people of God. And so while there would previously have been suspicions that Jesus was important or maybe even just intriguing, Maybe he was some kind of prophet or something like that. His teaching was just so wise. His miraculous signs, he must have been a messenger from God. On Palm Sunday, Jesus himself intentionally, purposefully signals to everyone who is watching that he is more than an insightful rabbi. That he is more than a prophet. Jesus is, is signaling to everyone that he is indeed the person that they had all been waiting for. He was the Messiah. He was this liberating king. You know the whole donkey bit that if you're new to church is kind of weird, but we've just sort of assumed it's normal. The whole donkey bit is Jesus orchestrating a sign it's a signpost to everyone watching who would have been familiar with Zechariah 9 that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was signaling that he was indeed the king that had come. Not just the prophet, but the king that the prophets had spoken about. 
And to show that the, that the crowd had, had understood this, that they had picked up what he was putting down, the crowd bursts into song. And what do they sing? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd here are referencing a psalm. They're referencing Psalm 118, which was a psalm that the Israelites, the people of God, would sing to welcome a king. To welcome a king. It was a hymn of royal entry. The crowd had recognized that Jesus was this long-expected king. But more than that, they hadn't just recognized who he was, but by implication of who he was, they had an expectation of what he had come to do. Right? In recognizing who he was, they now stood with bated breath in expectation of what he would do. If you read the other gospel accounts that speak of this same scene, you'll hear the crowd also shouted, Hosanna. We sang it. Hosanna. That's also taken from Psalm 118. Hosanna. You know what it means? Save us. Save us. Zechariah 9, Psalm 118. They are both say that the appearance of this king would mean that salvation is coming. Liberation is coming. Freedom is coming. The tension in the scene just got more intense. Just got more intense because what they expected Jesus to do was to liberate them. What they expected Jesus to do was to overthrow the oppressors. For everyone watching, seeing the donkey, hearing the psalm, the king has come to destroy the Romans. Try to put yourself in the scene for a moment. For them, Jesus was a revolutionary leader. It's going to make sense of the Pharisees' reaction, isn't it? Verse 39, the Pharisees. And some of, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke them. The Pharisees are saying, pipe down. Tell, tell your people to, to pipe down. Now, there's lots of reasons why they might have said this. The Pharisees tend to always be in confrontation with Jesus. Maybe they were nervous about his claims of authority. Maybe they were nervous about the concern for disruption and disorder. But what's interesting, what's more interesting is Jesus' response back to them. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is, this is classic Jesus. <laughs> in this volatile knife edge moment, he's just like pouring fuel on the fire. <laughs> He's saying their worship is completely appropriate. In fact, if they didn't worship, creation itself would sing. <laughs> He's saying you don't understand. Not only are they right to understand me as the king of Israel, if you understood truly, you would understand that my sovereignty extends beyond Israel. You see, Jesus is not just the king. He doesn't claim to be just the king. He claims to be the king of kings. He claims to be the Lord of lords. And you know what? That's why Jesus is a threat to every layer of power that confronts him. 
At every stage in his journey, Jesus is a threat. He was a threat to the spiritual authority of the Pharisees. He was a threat to the religious system of Jerusalem. He was a threat to the Pax Romana, threat to the peace of Rome and Christ's city. It's why Jesus is a threat everywhere in all places at all times to all power, to all claims of authority. It's the reason Christianity is a threat in every sphere of society. Because Jesus does not make small, localized, parochial claims to authority. He makes a universal claim to authority that says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In Christ said, if Jesus is Lord, then he's a problem for power. He's a threat. If Jesus is Lord, then the Pharisees, they would need to not confront him, they would need to listen to him. If Jesus is Lord, Jerusalem would need to receive him and listen to what he had to say and worship him. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar himself would need to bow to him. And if Jesus is Lord, then today he makes a claim on us too. Now, I was thinking about this, and I think oftentimes this is the real reason that people reject Jesus. Maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons that people reject Jesus. Maybe that's why you have rejected Jesus. You see, it's not because we have wrestled with the story of Jesus and we don't find it convincing or that we've thought about the teaching of Jesus and we've not found it compelling in any way. In fact, lots of people love Jesus' teaching. What happens is when we consider his claims of sovereignty and authority, we can't handle the implications for our own lives, for our own sovereignty and authority. If Jesus is king, he is a threat to your sovereignty. Your claim to do what you want with your life, to do what you want with your resources, to do what you want with your body, to do what you want with your time, Now, if you're not a Christian here today, welcome. (laughs) Maybe you've never been confronted by Jesus in this way before. And I just want to be honest with you. He's a threat. He's a threat. He's a threat to your personal sovereignty. He's a threat to your sense of autonomy. He makes claims about himself that make claims about who you are. Now, I hope by the end of today, you'll see that the claims he makes about himself are actually really good news for who you are. I hope one day you will accept Jesus as your king and recognize him as the good king, recognize him, in fact, as the only good king worthy of your allegiance. But I don't want to dumb it down for you today. Jesus doesn't come to you asking for your approval. He comes to you demanding your allegiance. Jesus doesn't come asking for our approval. He comes demanding our allegiance. Now, for the majority of us who are Christians here today, I imagine, we have accepted, haven't we, that Jesus is King. He's Lord of our lives. We've submitted ourselves to his authority, but sometimes we forget, don't we? You know? Sometimes we forget who is Lord of our lives. Sometimes we forget just how pervasive his reign is and ought to be in our lives. You know, I was um, 
reading uh, in Matthew 19, the, the story of the rich young ruler that had a conversation with Jesus. Maybe you don't know the story, but um, Jesus once has a conversation with a young man who has wealth. And he approaches Jesus and he asks him, um, what do I need to do in order to obtain eternal life? And Jesus responds, you, know, you need to keep the commandments of God. And, and the, the young man, he, he turns around. I don't know if he was smug, but I sort of think he might have been smug. And he said, well, these things I have done, what else do I lack? And Jesus turns to him and says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Not so smug. <laughs> the young man says he went away sorrowful. The implication is he, he realized that he could not do it. Now, the point of the story is not in order to get eternal life, you have to sell all of your possessions. That's a terrible reading of that text. The point of the story is that Jesus exposed that the young man didn't yet worship God as sovereign over everything in his life. God was an authority, but he wasn't the authority. Christ City, Jesus makes claims over the parts of your life that you have not yet given over to him. He makes claims over them, your, your dreams and your desires that you think fit outside of his dominion. Your body and your sexuality, your finances, your work, your relationships. Here's the question for us today, church. What part of our lives have we not yet submitted to the sovereignty of Jesus? Is God truly sovereign? Is God truly king? Is God simply an authority in your life or is he the authority in your life? Palm Sunday, it confronts us. It confronts us with the sovereignty, the universal sovereignty of Jesus. And it is a challenge to every claim to power and authority and sovereignty that the world puts up and that we put up. On one level, if you were to ask yourself the question, why did Jesus die? Why, well, why did they kill him? This was the reason. He was a threat. What's interesting is to place yourself into that scene. If you were in a position of authority, would you have killed Jesus? So, Back into the story of Palm Sunday. How did they respond to Jesus? Well, on the surface, there's a contrast, isn't there? Very obvious contrast. A contrast between the crowds who are singing praises and the Pharisees who are rebuking the crowds, right? That's the contrast. And we might conclude from this that our takeaway from this passage is that be more like the crowds and less like the Pharisees. And I think in some sense, yes, but no. I actually don't think that's the major takeaway of the scene because what happens is things change pretty quickly, don't they? You see, Palm Sunday, it presents itself to us in the narrative of the Gospels as the high point. As the high point. It's often called the triumphal entry. This is the high point of the narrative. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. Now he's at the gates of Jerusalem and he's got crowds behind him. High hopes, high expectations. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. People are singing praises. He's riding into Jerusalem on his donkey. If we were to experience reading the story for the first time, or if indeed we were there at the time, you would think 
that Jesus was on the cusp of a magnificent victory over Rome. But then you read on in the gospel. You read on and it starts to unravel. Holy Week starts on a high and it just seems to go downhill. That, that singing crowd, it dissipates. It disperses. Those followers, Jesus is betrayed and he's denied and he's abandoned by those who are closest to him, let alone the crowds. He's caught and he's tried and he's condemned by his enemies. And we know the story. He's ultimately hung on a Roman cross, a signal to everyone who was watching. This is what happens when you try to disturb the peace of Rome. A signpost to everyone, not of his victory, but of his defeat. And those shouts of Hosanna, save us. What was said to Jesus on the cross? He, look at him. He can't even save himself. How's he going to save us? He can't even save himself. So, how was Jesus received? The answer is he wasn't. He was ultimately rejected. He was rejected by the Pharisees. And the religious leaders and the chief priests and the scribes, he was rejected by Jerusalem, but he was ultimately re rejected by the populace as well, by the crowds. And the question is why? Why wasn't Jesus received? Well, I think the answer comes in the next few verses that we have today. In verse 41, it says this, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when the enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. As I said before, what's interesting about Palm Sunday is that it presents itself as a, as a high point in the story of Jesus. But what I hope you are seeing is actually rather low point. And these verses help to show us why. You see, when we picture the scene among the shouts of praise and the recognition and the smiles of the crowd, you zoom in on Jesus' face and what do we see? He looks upon Jerusalem and he weeps. He weeps. See, the contrast in this scene is not predominantly between the crowds and the Pharisees because by Good Friday, they've all merged into one. The contrast in this scene is not between the crowds and the Pharisees. It's between the Pharisees and the crowds and Jesus. It's between Jerusalem and Jesus. You see, everyone in the scene thinks that they know what is happening, but only Jesus knows what is going on. And that's why he weeps. It's the reason why at the cross, for the crowds and the Pharisees and the Romans and even his disciples, everyone who would look thinks that Jesus has failed, but Jesus knows that everyone has failed to see. Here's the question. What had everyone failed to see on Palm Sunday? 
What had they failed to see? Well, in our verse today, I think it shows us, it gives us an insight. Jesus says this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus says that they didn't know what would make for peace. They didn't know what would true, truly bring liberation. They didn't know how salvation would be achieved. You see, there's two ways that we can reject Jesus. We can, on the one hand, we can reject Jesus as king because he is a threat to our sovereignty. But there's another way that we can reject Jesus. The other way is we can reject Jesus because we want him to be a different kind of king than he actually is. We want him to achieve our ends by our means. We don't recognize the king that he actually is. See, this was why the crowds, they ultimately abandoned him. You see, the crowds were willing to go with him to the gates of Jerusalem in the hope of revolution, in the hope of retribution, in the hope of military victory, in the hope of achieving power, but they weren't willing to go with him to the cross. They'd recognized him as a king, that was bringing salvation, but they had not yet recognized what would make for peace, what would achieve their salvation. Think about it for a second. Think about the dynamic apart from Jesus. The Romans thought that peace would be brought about by destroying the revolutionaries, and the revolutionaries thought that peace would be brought about by destroying Rome. Both of them agreed that peace was only possible through violence. Peace was only possible through dominance. That the ends of peace could only be achieved by the means of violence. The peace of Rome and the peace of revolutionaries were both fueled by the same thing. They were both built on the blood of their enemies. This is why Jesus weeps. He looks upon Jerusalem and they just didn't understand. He knows that they are just operating with the same operating system as Rome. They were called to be set apart as a nation, but they just looked like every other nation. Jesus knows that repaying evil for evil never leads to righteousness. He knows that repaying violence for violence never leads to healing, that retribution and violence is just a cycle that doesn't lead us closer and closer together. It leads us further and further apart. Author Christopher Watkins puts it like this, the power of the cycle of retribution is in remaking the injured into the image of the injurer. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that all that retribution does, all that this way of operating does, is it makes the injured person look like the person who injured them. It makes the oppressed look like the oppressor. It turns the victim into the perpetrator. It turns Jerusalem into Rome. Christ City Jesus mourns because he knows that Jerusalem's actions, what they hoped for, wouldn't bring salvation. It would bring destruction. He knew that the king that they hoped for, not the king that he was, but the king that they hoped for wouldn't bring freedom. It would bring further bondage to them. He knew that if they lived by the sword, they would die by the sword. And so through tears, he prophesies over them and he says this, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus here is prophesying about a historical event you can read about. He's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. Everything that Jesus said happened. About 35 years after the Easter story in 70 AD, famously, Jerusalem would become a bloodbath. Other revolutionary leaders, other messianic figures would, would lead a people in violent rebellion against Rome, and in the end, Rome would crush them. The city would be destroyed, the temple decimated and burned. Thousands of people, men, women, and children, would be killed, just as Jesus said they would. Jerusalem did not know what would make for peace. They did not know what would make for peace. They hadn't understood the type of king that Jesus was. So here's the question for us today. What would make for peace? What could make for peace? If not that, then, then, then what? Well, we needed a revolutionary king we needed a different kind of king and we needed a different kind of revolution. We needed a king that would come not simply to overthrow the Romans, but would overthrow the spirit of Rome. A king that would come not simply to save Israel from oppression, but would break the cycle of oppression itself. You see, Jesus is the king who would not build peace with the blood of his enemies, but he would come to establish peace by giving his own blood. This is what they didn't understand. Jesus was a king who would establish peace, not by hanging his enemies on a cross as a display of his power over others, but he would hang himself on a cross to display an altogether greater power. Christ City, on Palm Sunday, we are right to anticipate a great victory, but it is not the victory that everyone expected. The victory is not the one that is run, won by the cross of Rome. It represents a crushing of the enemy, a crushing of those who oppose his rule. But it is the victory of the cross of Christ that transformed a symbol of violence this was a symbol of violence and oppression. It transformed this symbol into a symbol of sacrificial love for our enemies. For our enemies. Christ City, that's why Jesus is the only king worth following. Because he's the only one who is willing to lay down his life for his enemies. And that's good news. It wasn't just good news for Jerusalem who amidst their, their judgment had the hope of salvation. It wasn't even just good news for Rome, who amidst their oppression had opportunity for salvation. It is good news for us because we too stand as enemies of God outside of Christ. It's good news for us because while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Christ said, this is the king that we follow the humble king of the donkey, the humble king who came to the cross not to wear a crown of gold, but to wear a crown of thorns, to bear sin upon his shoulders for us, to reconcile enemies to himself. That's our king, Christ City. How will you respond to him on this Palm Sunday? 
On this day, as he appears on the horizon of our lives, as he appears at the gate of Jerusalem, when we are confronted again with who he is and who he claims to be, not who we want him to be, but who he is and who he claims to be, would we receive him? Would we follow him? Church, would we follow him not just simply to the gates of Jerusalem, but would we follow him to the cross? We follow him to the cross to show the world that there is a greater power that brings peace. Would you stand as we respond?